Up next on The Grit, KBS's Kevin Henry continues his inquiry into racialized trauma by speaking to longtime educator Shamari Jones about racialized trauma within his own life. Okay, Shamari. So we were talking about uh, a couple of things before, about racial trauma and the effects that racial trauma or racialized trauma has on African-Americans, but, but also just in general with people of color. And I wanted you to talk about that a little bit. And then we have some other uh, topics that we will address as well uh, related to racialized trauma. So tell us a little bit about racialized trauma and racial trauma as you know it. Yeah, you know, I, I see it and experience it as a black male, um, not just in the role that I play and uh, um, my professional world, but just personally uh, as I walk outside of my front door or, you know, engage in any if not many of the activities that I choose to engage in, but, you know, racialized trauma um, from the experiences that I have and have learned um, really lead me to a definition around um, a preconceived, a pre-understood stasis that we hold very like concretely in parts of our brain um, that continue to regenerate generation after generation, you know, and I often tell this story. Um, I went to a conference a couple of years ago in Portland, um, and there was this uh, amazing author, professor, young black man at Columbia University uh, named Chris Emden. Uh, and he's a scientist by trade, by training and education, but he's a hip hop artist as well. And so he incorporates many of uh, this hip hop lifestyle and world into uh, the education he provides for his students, whether it be uh, from a biological standpoint or whether it be uh, just through talking about racialized trauma uh, and or racial equity that um, needs to be continually discussed in our country. Um, but the story he tells is one where many years ago there was an experiment that happened in a laboratory with mice. Um, these mice were put into a box where the floor was electrocutable. Um, what would happen is the scientists would turn on this sound, sounding like a bell, and as soon as they turned on the bell sound, they flipped the switch to electrocute the floor. At that moment, the mice would jump. They turned the floor off, um, you know, the, the chime would no longer chime, and the mice would go about their normalcy. Uh, and then they would continue to do this throughout the day, you know, concretely cementing in their minds that there's this, uh, there's this correlation between the bell and the electrocuted floor. And so in the generation after that set of mice uh, perished, um, the next generation was capable of understanding that without um, the electrocuted floor, uh, by ringing the bell, uh, the mice would jump on the ground, off the ground, excuse me. And they found this to be true four generations later after the original mouse was conditioned to understand what his space was. To me, that's a trauma, you know? It wasn't a trauma based on race, but it was a trauma that was induced into this mice, you know, over the history of experiences that the original mice have. So you attribute that to racism, you know, and where a lot of uh, we as African-Americans understand was one of the onsets of racism as it pertains to our country, you know, and that would happen through slavery, right? And then enslavement of many of our West African um, mothers and fathers. Um, and so bringing that tyranny over to our country has instilled in many folks that there are attributes that when we see them, when we experience them, it brings something back up. 
in us that causes us to be traumatized and sometimes not have equal access and equal opportunity to some of the things that other people have. So trauma has a space in life in which it really prevents um, unconsciously prevents us from living a lifestyle that is one that mimics those of the dominant race and the dominant culture here in our country. And that's fascinating. And I think that a lot of times, you know, people feel, I think, especially in this country, that in so many ways is, has so much success and so much richness that people will say, hey, you know, Shamari, all you got to do is, you know, work hard and, you know, get your degree. Don't, you know, don't worry about all that slavery stuff. That was, you know, hundreds of years ago. And so a lot of people don't understand that. And, you know, you mentioned triggers and how something that somebody says, you know, maybe it's seeing a Confederate statue or, or maybe it's just uh, hearing something even, uh, you know, I remember one time somebody referred to me as a Negro, you know, and it was completely unintentional. It was completely out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. uh, and this person was a liberal. However, it just triggered in my mind that, you know, I associated that word with the 50s and the 60s and segregation and, and uh, being labeled in a very derogatory way. But if I tried to explain that to somebody, they'd go, you know, what's the big deal? It's just a word. So how do you see what you're talking about manifest itself, like either in your life today or just kind of in general in, in our society? You know, I happen to work in the realm of education, and so you see a huge manifestation there, whereas the performance gaps that exist between those who uh, in our district uh, by racial um, uh, context uh, traditionally perform at a particular level and those of a different, you know, racial context uh, may perform at a, a different or a lower, lower sometimes um, level of uh, attainment of the education that we're seeking to give. And a lot of what happens in our system is there are preconceived biases that many of our educators have when providing the education to the young people, having a deficit mindset and disbelief that some of our young people will have the capability of being successful in this trajectory, right? On this educational journey. You know, we see it all the time. We continually hear um, how some of our young black men and young black women are told by people who should be the folks uplifting them that they're not gonna be successful in this, or you shouldn't even try to do that because you're not prepared for it. And my honest response is, I know that there are some kids that aren't, going to be as apt to that transformation as we would like them for them to be, but your job, your whole job, the reason why we pay you in general, right, is to prepare that student, you know, is to uplift them, is to, you know, show them where the opportunity lies for them to be successful in that endeavor that they want to uh, engage in, etc. And we have a lot of naysayers and folks who um, just don't believe in, you know, our culture, our people, and our race. Well, I, I remember even, and this was several years ago, but there was a, a, it was a white parent who didn't want their child to go to a particular high school because it was named after a, a, a revered and famous black civil rights leader. But they felt that when they were going to go for, you know, go to college and, you know, you say what high school you went to, that they would think that was a ghetto school. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, it's just you know, such a, kind of 
it's a it's a deep rooted um bias you know which leads to a very strong racist uh tendency or racist behaviors that manifest from people who don't even understand that that's what's happening you know like there are instances where when reading an application of course and your name sounds a little bit more urban or ethnic you know you're written off the same thing still happens with apartments and complexes where you're trying to get in right there are all these systemic barriers to people who look like us you know that present themselves in ways that sometimes we don't even know that they still exist it's the same stuff that our forefathers were fighting for on the front lines, you know, and perished for, you know, and were martyred for, right? Exactly, right? Who really fought very hard for our country to transform, to be one of acceptance of our people. But all it's done, you know, generation after generation has manifested itself in a way that has masked the fact that you know, uh, this really does, does still exist. You know, maybe there's no longer um, water hoses and fire hydrant hoses and, and German shepherds, you know. Now, you know, it's a different layer of bias. You know, it's, you know, a continuation of the education deficit that exists in many races and many cultures. It's the lack of access. I mean, look what COVID has done to many of our Latinx and Black families, Native families, right? Those who are most exposed and are most at high risk. You have to ask yourself, why are some of these cultures higher at risk of COVID? Why are they entering into COVID with preconditions that would, you know, really, um, make it more challenging for them during this COVID time. And, you know, that goes back to uh, access to food. It goes back to access to resources. It goes back to equal pay. It goes back to opportunity for education. A lot education, of the structural right? racism yeah. that's... Everything. That's not... And the structural racism isn't, isn't obvious. And that's the thing. It, it reminds right. me of like, like a disease, you know, yeah. where eventually a lot of times you have symptoms, but sometimes you don't have, you don't have any symptoms. And people yeah. just drop dead, and then you find out that their arteries were 100% clogged, <laughs> going to their heart or something. I think sometimes it's in my mind. You can give me your response to this. That sometimes it's the more insidious, kind of covert, microaggressive kind of racism that's particularly challenging. Because it's one thing if I just come come to you and say, "Look, Shamari, I don't like you because I don't like black people." Now it's another thing that when I'm doing things in the workplace or in education, and this feeds into the, the trauma and that sense of anxiety, when you come, you come out of a meeting and you kind of go, wait a minute, was that, you know, was that, was he being racist? Was, is it just me or is it them? And then you get gaslit if you bring it up and it's like, well, Shamari is just a joke. I didn't mean anything by it. So this yeah. seems to feed into the, the, the racial trauma that's always kind of, you know, I don't know, kind of flowing through your veins, so to speak. I mean, how do you feel? About yeah. That? You know, um, especially, I mean, I heard a, I heard a wonderful podcast uh, on my way over to where I'm currently. Out, um, in, the, out in rural America. We'll, we'll talk right. about that in a minute. Um, and I can't recall the woman's name right now, but I will get it to you um, via text. But um, she was speaking about the ladders that we build uh, in service of climbing up to the top towards having opportunity to be seen as successful, to be seen as acceptable, to be seen as revered, right? And we construct these ladders, you know, in ways that help us to 
at least see the steps. I know that if I had this job that paid this much money, that people are going to revere me as, you know, greater than what I revere myself presently, right? And there's these constructions of ladders and, you know, the, the host who was doing the interview and the interviewee were uh, going back and forth of the definition of this. And the author of this particular book was saying, no, actually the ladder is the system, right? The ladder is, we have this subconscious that helps us to understand that if we fit into these many boxes that we will defy the institution that is consistently oppressing us. You know, we will bust through that barrier, we'll break down that wall, the ceiling has no glass left on it. You know, we're gonna rise through into the top. And so oftentimes many folks forego, you know, many parts of their normal culture in order to fit into these boxes, right? And that, you know, that structural racism, that internalized um, um, demotion of your own sometimes values, your own sometimes sense of self-worth gets broken down consistently so you can fit into that box. Imagine how many meetings folks go into and they tell themselves before they go in, okay, be calm, you know what I mean? Don't pop off on the first white person who says something sideways, you know, help coach people through the conversation because your job as a person, as a representative of your particular culture, your job is one that helps folks to understand so others won't have to endure what it is that you're enduring presently. Like there's there's this coach, there's a self-coaching, right? Sometimes like, like there's mutual coach. If there's more than one, you guys get a chance. Yeah, to it's like yourself. a it's like carrying a weight a lot of times. Oh, absolutely, man. And sometimes absolutely. you don't even realize you're carrying it. Yeah, hundred percent, man. And you know, the the hope is, you know, I think about this in my own uh, narrative in my own world, you know, the hope is at some point in time, the light switch will turn on, you know, and once it turns on all the people and all the glory is just going to come to you. Right. And then they're going to be there to support the thing that you are fighting the most hard for, uh, as it pertains to transformation for people like you, or even sometimes just you yourself. Right. Like, and it is complicated to sit and wait you know, while uh, observing uh, the 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 goal line getting further and sometimes further away, right? And so, um, yeah, it's a journey. It's a challenge. It's a you know, I I envy um, many folks that I admire who you know relinquish themselves. They cut the chains of you know the institution that sort of reels them in and continues to uh, cause them to want to chase that dream, you know, that big dream, that, that lots of money, that the folks who cut the chains, the, the ones who, you know, are, are entrepreneurs, the people who um, dedicate themselves with no equivocation to um, relinquishing who they normally are, um, dedicate themselves to a cause of transforming our systems in ways that support, you know, those who come behind us. Uh, it's a big deal, you know, and it's a hard job to do because you're gonna take hits and blows all day. You know, I, I revere to um, those servant leader type jobs as ones where you know what you're getting into, you know, before you take the opportunity, you come with your entire tactical SWAT suit on all day. Your armor. You know, so you're armed up, buddy, armed yeah, to the team. 
Absolutely. know, and you're ready to go into battle. You're, you're prepared for that. They paid you for this. You know, all the jobs you had were leading up to this. Um, and then oftentimes, like, you take a hit, you know, and it's cool because I'm rocking all my gear, man. I'm, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I'm absorbing it. Um, and you take a few more hits. And then there's a point in time when them hits hurt, bro. Like, honest, you know, and well, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah sometimes yeah. you get hit in the same spot over and over and it penetrates, you know. And so, like, there is a self-care in there that really has to be considered, you know, when you are that warrior having to stand on that hill uh, every single day, knowingly, um, in ways that don't replenish you. Right. And you know, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. And, and you don't, sometimes you don't know what direction it's coming from, which leads me to my last question in our conversation here, because you you travel around and, and we're talking and we don't have to disclose the location, but let's just say it's, it's not in your normal comfort zone. You're out in rural Washington, uh, trying to find some peace and quiet. So, so how, how is your, your mental state or your awareness or whatever you want to call it when you are in a, in an environment like that, which isn't necessarily what you're accustomed to, you're out in rural America. What what happens? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interestingly, like I don't even have to be in the woods in order to be on guard all the time. You know, like I don't live in a community where there's another person who shares my same, you know, skin tone or complexion. Um, the the space in which I work only has. 3% that we serve and less than that, that actually are employed by our organization statewide, you know, we're less than 8%, you know, of the population. And so, you know, I'm generally accustomed to in this particular state and space, um, being pretty on guard, but it gets really heightened when I'm in space where, you know, I have a preconceived uh, understanding of the type of people who uh, tend to trend in those spaces uh, <laughs> and the type of mentalities that uh, people tend to have the further more rural you get you know like I went um, I went on an excursion a couple of weeks ago um, near this uh, uh, really beautiful lake I believe it was in Eastern Washington somewhere. And I took my bicycle. I like to cycle from time to time. Um, I went on a, a, a nice little 20 or so mile ride. And on my way, there's nothing but, but giant billboards of Trump signs, you know, in support of. And um, like the, the, the understanding that I'm out here as a black dude on a bicycle Right. It's not like I'm covered. You know, it's not like you don't see my face. Right. You know that I'm the black dude on a bicycle on the side of the road. Uh, one of the only likely that's in this entire you know, region. Um, and this is Trump country. And in my mind, I'm thinking, damn, I better get out of here before the sun goes down, you know, um, because I don't know what happens. Same thing when I come here camping in the woods, right? Like, I know that I need to bring whatever it is that I need in order to protect myself. I know I need to, at a certain hour of the day, I'm locking it in, man. I'm going inside. Like, I'm not, I'm not tent, um, I'm not tent camping. I'm RV camping. So, like, I'm closing the door. I'm locking the thing. You know, I'm a little bit more nervous about tent camping. I do have friends who are black who do do it, and they love it and enjoy it. It's just not for me. It's not there. Like. I, I have a tendency to just consistently live in this space of 
perpetual fear looking over my shoulder like who's coming you know I was on the highway today and someone gave me the side eye and he was a big bearded dude you know like you know I was going too slow because I'm trailing like 5,000 pounds you know and so sometimes when you're going up hills you know like a semi you slow down you know because you're forced to um and you know he's giving me the side eye yelling at me and I'm like okay I know what I need to do in the event that I need to do it, right? Because this is the preconceived understanding that I have. It's a fight or it's a flight, man. You know, and I have a tendency, you know, nowadays in my cantankerous stage of life, have uh, more interest in the fight, you know, because, you know, I, I have like suppressed so much, so often uh, in service of, uh, helping to educate people towards an understanding of what not just my needs are, but the needs of all the people that you serve are. Um, and then sometimes I lose it. You know, sometimes it is a, it's a firecracker. It's an explosion when I experience that in a, in my personal world where it's not one that is, um, you know, you're going to lose your job if you blow off, you know? And so um, it's fascinating. Um, to consistently be in that space, you know, and I've only not been in that space a couple of times in my life, you know, and um, out of the country a couple of times, Western Africa, you know, sometimes in very, very um, black cities like Atlanta. Um, right. But um, it's been it's been a journey trying to fit. And that goes back to the story of the ladder. Right. Sometimes you put yourself on this ladder to climb it in ways that help you feel like I can be anywhere and everyone accepts the me who I am, you know, when in reality, that is unfortunately not the case. Well, so often we are, you know, the one percent, the four percent could be even the 20 percent. But I can literally go an entire day, depending on where I am in King County and not see another black person. Okay. I, I, I will I will say, though, I lived in Hawaii for five years, and that was an interesting experience because demographically, uh, African-Americans only make up 2% of the population on Oahu. However, mm. every three out of four people I saw was as brown as I was. So, <laughs> I, you know, so I did find that space where my blackness wasn't something that was constantly on my mind. Whereas yeah. if I go where you are right now, I, you know, my antenna are definitely <laughs> thinking in the up position. <laughs> That's right. So last question is just real short, real, real quick. It's um, how do you self-care? You mentioned self-care and with all the, all this weight and angst and anxiety sometimes that, that you're dealing with both professionally and working in the equity world, as well as personally, what's your, your go-to? Kind of yeah. Uh, uh, this is care. one of them. Um, just trying to break away and find a respite. You know, a place where I can park and plug in and just be for a couple of days. You know, it's even better. Like, fortunately, we were capable of doing this uh, this conversation today because it's even better when I'm in spaces where I have cell phone service. You know, and I may have access to maybe Wi-Fi there because then I can just sit and chill and work. I, I work from home. Um, so sit, chill and work and just be in a space where 
there's no neighbors, there's no construction, there's no fast cars, there's nobody who just wants everything from you right then and right there. And so uh, this is one, you know, I try to get out and do some sort of physical exercise from time to time. I've been a little lazy, lazy as of late, but um, bringing the cycling back and um, trying my best to do some morning routine. And, you know, honestly, like most of the things that I do are right there in my home, you know, um, I have a small cadre of people who I convene with um, to talk about these issues. And, you know, interestingly, um, you know, post George Floyd, there were tremendous amounts of groups of people who were beginning to form in service of just taking care of ourselves. And so um, I'm super proud of that because, you know, with or without George, we needed that love and that ignited us to get together more regularly. So I have a small cadre of them um, that uh, we're all working towards a particular project in service of transforming our municipality. But you know, we have days where we just debrief um, and let go and let loose. And so those are a few of the things, man, that uh, and they're hodgepodge. You know, I want to get to be that person who has, you know, a, a thing. You know, I haven't gotten there yet. Right now, my thing is undiscovered as, you know, something that I absolutely uh, do in order to uh, replenish and refuel me. I don't have a thing yet, but I'm working towards finding that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for sharing uh, some of your insights and some of your experiences. My doubt, my no doubt. That was Shamari Jones, an educator with the focus in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Washington State education system. Jones spoke with KBCS's Kevin Henry about the impact racialized trauma has had on his life. These interviews are made possible thanks to listeners like you. You can find this interview and more interviews like it at kbcs.fm and anywhere you can find podcasts.